I'm Donna. And I'm Carrie. And we are Paranormal Chicks. Episode 118. Okay. So, we know that the world is going to hell in a handbasket. And I'm listening to a podcast called Slow Burn. I cannot remember who told me to listen to it, but I'm glad they did. It's three seasons, as per usual. I only know what the first season is because that's what I'm listening to. And it's about Watergate. Uh Uh-huh. And y'all, our fucking government is so corrupt. Like, it is so fucked up. Like, it just makes me realize that basically everything that happened in House of Cards is probably true. Because it's probably true. (laughs) And I mean, just when you look at, like, just the the civil unrest that's happening now, just just the systemic racism and how that played into the that election and like it's just like how are things not different yeah you know everybody kind of grapples with what's going on in the world differently and how they handle it and i think it's very important to respect how people handle everything like some people are more vocal some people i saw a post it was like some people are having hard conversations with their family and it may not be posted on social media but you know but they're having these conversations and on i think it's important to respect how each person's dealing with it but i do want to be clear that donna and i support black lives matter definitely there was a post in the facebook group just kind of asking wait well where do y'all stand and I feel like we kind of said it an episode or two ago, but just to be clear, we don't want to remain silent because silence is complicity. And we want to shout from the rooftops that Black Lives Matter and equality is equality. Yes. And, you know, we've talked about it over and over again because I am definitely one that's like, what if this happens? Well, what if that happens? Or, you know, even with amongst family members and people who listen to the podcast and all of that. And it's like, but the end of the day, we want to be on the right side of history and we support human beings and Black Lives Matter. Um, Completely off subject, but Slow Burn is also a great Casey Musgrave song. <laughs> Just saying. We do know that we have police officers that listen to this podcast and first responders and other people in those service roles. And we do want to say thank you for your service. We respect the police. We have family members that are police officers. We know that your jobs are harder than we could ever imagine with the worst pay that we could ever imagine. But we also recognize that change has to occur. Change has to occur through better training and just different ways of policing. While we support the police, we absolutely do not condone or even, I don't even know the word, but fuck this violence against people of color. And obviously, we don't know what the answer is because we're just lowly podcasters over here who just are giving an opinion. We don't know what the answer is, but... I do know, and I'm going to speak for Donna for this too. She didn't know about says, but we do know that hate is not the answer. Hate against anyone for who they are is not the answer. That goes for police. That goes for people of color. That goes for people in the LGBTQ community. That goes for people who are overweight. That goes for literally anyone. 
we don't stand behind that. Right. Well, like many victims of your stories who are sex workers, and we know how we all feel about that. We say it all the time in your in your cases that they don't get the you know respect or anything that they deserve. We don't know the answer. Okay. Look, we have a lot of serious shit to talk about. We just did. And then you know we got stories to tell. Mm-hmm. But we need a little break from that. And these people don't have hate in their heart. At least not for us, because they are supporting us. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so freaking much, Megan G. from Louisiana. Jill W. from Utah. Chris F. from Georgia. Kristen B. from Kentucky. Andrea M. from Illinois. And Crimes We're Into podcast from South Carolina. And they do true crime and paranormal as well, y'all. All about podcasts, supporting podcasts. Absolutely. So thank y'all, everyone, for supporting us on Patreon, supporting us, listening to the podcast, reviewing us, engaging in social media. Thank you all so freaking much from the bottom of our hearts. If you want an episode shout out, head on over to patreon.com slash the APC podcast. Okay, are you ready to tell your story? Because I feel like I've been talking nonstop since we started. Okay, so this week I'm not doing paranormal. Uh-oh. I know, I know. But this is an unsolved mystery that I don't think you would ever cover. And it intrigues me so freaking much. So I'm doing it. Okay. So, picture it. April 18th, 1943. Four childhood friends were out in some woods just south of Birmingham, England. Their names were Robert Hart, Thomas Willits, Bob Farmer, and Fred Payne. They were hunting rabbit, and I feel like there's a cartoon reference for rabbit. Legit, did you see me snicker a little bit? Because I was like, we're hunting rabbits, or something like that. Right, okay, but I was saying that when I like wrote it. I was like, rabbits, and then I was like... All I could think about was Putty Cat, and I was like, "Mm, I don't think that's the same thing. I think it's Elmer Fudd. Yeah, and the other one's Tweety Bird. But why do they sound the same? Yeah, he says, be very quiet. We're hunting wabbits. (laughs) Oh, Elmer Fudd. (laughs) Well, anyway, it wasn't a funny time because it was during the war, and food was rationed and really in short supply. So the boys were hunting rabbits and other animals in hopes of providing food for each of their families. Well, as luck would have it, rabbits were nowhere to be found. However, the boys were determined, so they went down to Hagley Wood, which was part of the Hagley estate that belonged to Lord Cobham. Technically, they were trespassing, but desperate times, desperate measures, am I right? So off they went, and now they were thinking that they could probably poach or steal some eggs from bird's nest in the trees. They came across this really big tree, which was labeled by many as a witch elm. But in all actuality, it was probably a witch hazel tree. They look alike. Anyway, it's just a thing. Little fun fact. However, it looked like a witch elm because... The tree got its name for its strange appearance, kind of like broom bristles sticking up. Well, Bob Farmer saw a glimpse of something white in the trunk of the tree, and knowing that witch elms are usually hollow, he scurried up the branches and peered down. 
However, he couldn't really see what it was. And still thinking it was a nest, he asked for a branch. Well, one of the boys provided him with a branch. He fished the white blob out of the tree, and in his hand was a skull. The boys gathered round to inspect what they thought was an animal skull, but they soon realized that it was, in fact, human. Dun-dun-dun. They were fascinated, but spooked. And obviously, they were put between a rock and a hard place because they were not supposed to be on this land. Right. So, they're all still in their early teens and in that place of, like, they're more scared of their parents and what their parents will do to them as punishment. More so than being like, hey, police, we just found a skull in a tree. Right. So, they all agreed that they would speak of this to no one. And just put the skull back in the tree. However, the 13-year-old, Tommy Willits, did not have the willpower to keep silent. That night, he wrestled with what to do. And when his parents prodded him as to what was wrong because he was acting weird, he broke down and just blurted everything out. So, of course, his parents were like, beep, beep, boop, 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 boop. Actually, beep, beep, beep. That one one. That one one was in existence. Then. Oh, true. It's the 40s. So, beep, beep, boop, 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 and alerted the police. The next morning, the local police were led by Tommy to the tree and they found the skull. And along with it, more bones in the hollow trunk. Basically, they found an almost complete skeleton. And of course, by now, the flesh had rotted away. But there were other clues to as who this person was, such as a shoe, a cheap imitation gold wedding ring, and fragments of clothing. The pieces of clothing were of a striped cardigan, a skirt, and a peach-colored taffeta slip. And the shoe was a very worn blue crepe-soled shoe, but it was of higher quality. Which doesn't match the like, fake gold ring. Right. And if it's of a higher quality, that person wouldn't have worn, like, a well-worn shoe. Yeah. Meaning, if they could have afforded that, they would have gotten a, another pair. Yeah. Unless it was, like, goodwill. Right. Or a hand-me-down, for, like, from someone else. Yeah. Or, you know, whatever. Also, the skeleton was almost complete because... She was missing a hand, but the bones to her hand were later found scattered next to the tree. The skull, of course, was valuable evidence, but they were even more hopeful because it still had tufts of hair and had a clear dental pattern. And she had like odd front teeth where they basically overlapped each other. And because of these irregularities in her jaw and teeth, the police were so confident that they would be able to establish her identity rather quickly. Also, she was missing a tooth that looked like it had been professionally extracted not too long before she died. So there should have been dental records to prove that. Well, the body was shipped off to pathologist slash forensic examiner, Professor James Webster. And he was able to determine that the victim had died about 18 months ago. So that put the time of death around October 1941. She was around 35 years of age. 
And he said that she had mousy brown colored hair, which, oh, that's kind of a jerk's thing to say. Rude. But sadly, I know exactly what he's talking about. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, thanks, Disney. So true. And he was able to determine that she was five feet tall and that she had given birth in the past. The hole in the tree that the female's body was found in was approximately five feet off the ground, so they ruled suicide unlikely. And Webster also thought that the body had been pushed into the trunk while still basically warm. No other way to really say it. Well, before rigor mortis had set in. Mm -hmm. Because there's no way that once it had, that it would get into that small of a spot. But rigor mortis sets in and then goes away and it's... Well, that's what he also said, that it could have been days after the Mm -hmm. fact, too. But that would mean that they would have to, you know, like, again, it either happened right near the tree or happened away and they had to bring her to this tree. Mm Mm-hmm. Also, the body was feet first, and to give you an idea of how small this tree was, at the smallest width, the trunk was like 17 inches. They couldn't even get the bones out, just like scooping everything out. They had to get someone to cut the tree open to get the bones out because of how like the branches and everything had like kind of grown in and All of that, but, like, it was so tight in there. And even though she was small in stature, there was no way she could have crammed herself in the trunk of the tree. And so suicide was definitely ruled out after they took that into consideration. Because to get her body in, how far down she was in the tree and all of that, like, they said that she just could not do that herself. What James Webster officially wrote about ruling out accidental death was, I cannot imagine a woman accidentally slipping in there. Neither do I know it reasonable for a woman to crawl into that space to commit suicide. He also went on to say, it was an excellent place for concealment of a murder, and I think it indicated local knowledge. Because who looks in a tree? Especially like... The tree itself is very eerie looking, you know, so like I would have never went near it. I would have been like, okay, bye. These boys just happened to be up to no good, started making trouble in their neighborhood. They found one little skull and their moms got scared. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. So they were all in agreement that there was definitely some foul play But what had happened, they had no idea. There was no trauma to any of the bones. But one thing that they did find was a wad of the taffeta material just wedged into the mouth of the skull. So Webster concluded that she had died of asphyxiation. However, later on when the boys were questioned, they said that they had wrapped fabric around the stick in order to put the skull back into the tree. Mm. So that could have been there from them doing that. And that could blow Webster's theory out of the water in all actuality. We're back to square one of not knowing diddly squat. 
Another thing they found at the scene in the woods was an identification card of a female. So they thought maybe this body belonged to the woman on the card. So police, of course, followed that lead first. And they went to the address on the card, but the woman was alive and even answered the door. She said that she had never been to Hagley Wood and had no idea how or why her card had ended up there. So the police were like, okay. And they continued their investigation by doing an extensive search of around 3,000 reports of missing women. And it was over a 1,000 square mile area, but this got them nowhere. I wonder if the person who they found the identification of, like, did they look similar? Like, was she, like, taking her identity? I don't know. They didn't go into detail ever about it, and, like, the name was never given or anything like that in reports. So we can never conclude anything from that. But it definitely makes you suspicious. Also because, like, I have no idea. I've never, ever been to those woods. Okay. Like. Right. But your card ended up there. Right. Right by this dead body. Like, you know, of a female. So, but who knows? But going back to the search, since it was wartime, there were so many missing persons that it was so hard for them to do a good search because there were so many people to search through. And like I said, they did it over around 3,000 reports and... That probably wasn't even all of them. And it's 1940s, so, I mean, that shit's by hand. Mm-hmm. The teeth that they were sure to lead to a dental match didn't. They did a comprehensive search of dentist records, but none matched. There were no labels in any of her clothes to give them leads to go on. And a lot of sources were like, very odd. And I'm like, mm, no, because tags itch me. And so I cut those suckers out all the freaking time. Mm-hmm. So not odd. Okay. Some people have sensitive skin. Okay. And tagless shirts is a thing for a reason. <laughs> right? Gah. But they did have one lead that seemed really promising. And that was the manufacturer of the shoe could be identified. They were able to account for all of the shoes of this style made except for six pairs, which were sold in a market in Dudley, which was a town 11 miles from Birmingham. However, that's as far as it went. That's as much as it helped. Oh, my God. Get the identification. But it's like, oh, my God, six pairs in this market, so close to this town, In these six, her shoes were one of these. But who? The newspapers soon stopped writing about the unidentified female found in the tree because, you know, the whole World War II thing going on, bombs every day, all the things. But about six months later in December 1943, there were these cryptic messages that started popping up around town and they were scribbled in white chalk. They read, Who put Lubella down the witch elm? Hagley Wood. 
And soon this one message was followed by several more messages, and they all had different variations, but finally they seemed to settle on one phrase. Who put Bella in the witch elm? And these phrases were found all throughout Birmingham and the West Midlands areas. And the phrases were always places that wouldn't just be kids goofing off or anything like that. They seemed to be like a little bit higher, so they would have to, you know, it wasn't just like, oh, we're just going to write here real quick. It was like, no, they'd have to have something to stand on. It was like premeditated kind of stuff. And they seemed to be all done by the same hand. And now police finally had a name to go off of, Bella. But it really took them nowhere. So now we're going to move on to some of the theories. The first is of a local sex worker. She said that Bella is actually Lou Bella, like the graffiti suggested, and that she was her friend and fellow sex worker. They both worked the Hagley Road area, but she disappeared three years prior. But nothing came of that because, as you know, like I mentioned in the start of this, Sex workers were definitely not high on the list of accredited witnesses or, you know, someone that they're going to rush to find out the identity of or anything like that. Right. I roll, I roll, I roll. The second one is dark magic and the occult. This one people had been whispering about for a while because Hagley Wood was known for kind of being a spooky place where it was thought that pagan rituals were done, etc., etc. But it really took life two years later because the case attracted the attention of an anthropologist named Margaret Murray. And she said that Bella had probably fallen victim to a coven of witches. She noted that the name Bella could be from Belladonna, which is also known as like nightshade and poisonous and all of that and used in magic, blah, blah, blah. And also she noted that Bella may have been a witch herself because of how she was buried. It was a way of imprisoning a witch after death and making sure she could not cause harm in the afterlife of putting them in a tree. Hmm. Also, This really wasn't on Margaret Murray, but lining up with the witch thing. So a witch elm is W-Y-C-H. And so that's how a lot of the phrases were. But then some phrases spelled it W-I-T-C-H. And so they said, like, maybe they knew something and, like, they alluded to the fact, you know, like, who knows? Ooh. Who knows? Anyway, back to old Margaret, and she had another thing that she said all the details lined up with an occult ceremony known as the Hand of Glory. And this is where a hand is severed from a dead person, usually like a criminal, like still hanging in the gallows kind of thing. And then candles are made from the fat from the quartz and wicks from the person's hair. And it's supposed to hold the power to render people frozen, like freeze them in place and make them like speechless, you know, just like immobilize them. 
It is said that burglars would use this before breaking into a house to, like, immobilize the people sleeping. And all I can picture is the Grinch. I don't know why. (laughs) All I can do is picture him. But, of course, the newspapers were like, yes, girl, give us more juicy scoop on this because sex sells, but the occult sells more. You know? Right. Like, you talk about... Anything dark magic, occult, people are like, yes. Don't sign me up, but tell me all the things about it. Right. That's kind of how they are. Right. And they don't care if it's true. They want it to be wrong. You know, they want you to tell all the scary stuff. All these outlandish things. Yeah. Well, later, there was a local resident named Charles Walton who was found pinned to the ground with a pitchfork in a nearby village. So that stoked the flames of dark magic even more. So this theory really was the one that everyone believed for a while. And by the 1950s, witchcraft was in everyone's mind and their biggest fear because they didn't understand it. So, of course, it was wrong. We all know how that is. And they were about to go on their own witch hunt, honestly. But then a woman who called herself Anna contacted the Wolverhampton Express and Star in 1953. And this was because a journalist named Wilfred Byford Jones had started showing interest in the cryptic messages and actually identifying Bella. So Anna wanted to write to him and give him some sort of closure. So, this comes to the third theory. Anna wrote to Wilfred, Finish your articles regarding the Witch Elm crime by all means. They are interesting to the readers, but you'll never solve the mystery. One person who could give you the answers is now beyond the jurisdiction of earthly courts. The affair is closed and involves no witches, black magic, or moonlight rites. Much as I hate having to use a nom de plume, I think you would appreciate it if you knew me. The only clues that I can give you are that the person responsible for the crime died insane in 1942, and the victim was Dutch and arrived illegally in England about 1941. I have no wish to recall any more. Anna from Claverly. Hmm. The police followed up on the letter from Anna and found out that her real name was Una Mossop. Una was married to a man named Jack Mossop, who was working for the ammunition depot in Coventry. Honestly, I think he was kind of like a big time talker, kind of like, kind of a sleazeball, like just a salesman Mm -hmm. kind of guy, like black market, like... That kind of guy, like, what you need, I can get it for you. Like, smooth talker, that, whatever. Because, like, he apparently spent time walking around in a Royal Air Force or RAF uniform, even though he had never been in the RAF. And he, I can't remember how he missed, like, having to go to war, but he did in a way, you know, and so it was like, you didn't even go and like you're, yeah. but he's doing that to get like the clout and all of this. So again, he's just like, boy, you got that at an army surplus store. Right. Well, he started dressing better and acting differently, even more different and more like showy than he had before. 
and he would go visit his grandmother more, but he would always be with a Dutchman, and no one knew who this Dutchman was. Well, according to Una's story, what she said that Jack confessed to later is that he used his position in the ammunitions thing to pass on information to this Dutchman, and his name was Von Ralt. And he was, in fact, like mm, a Nazi spy. Oh, shit. Yeah, he was working like as the go between. So Jack would sell him the information and he would go to like the spy rings and be like, hey, here's where the ammunition locations are. So if you want to hit them, this is where they are, blah, blah, blah. Well, as she mentioned, Bella was a Dutch woman, and she arrived in England, 1941, and became involved with that spy ring that Von Rolt was. How Una knew this is because Jack broke down and told her and his grandmother, like, I can't take this anymore. I have to tell someone. Like, he told them about him selling the information. He said that he had been out to the Littleton Arms, which was like a bar, and he was with Von Ralt and, quote-unquote, a Dutch piece. Okay. Right. I'm like, okay. And she had gotten awkward and passed out. So they went to a wood and stuck her in a hollow tree. No. Yes, this is what he said. And... The Dutchman was like, when she comes to her senses, like, she'll know what happened the next morning. And she'll know not to drink so much and, and, like, embarrass me the next time. Well, well, okay. I found another version of this story, though, where Van Ralt had picked up Jack and he had Bella with him. But the two got in a fight, like, in Dutch. And so Jack didn't really know what was going on. He's like... Lover spat, I don't fucking know. Like, it's awkward, but okay. Well, then Von Ralt ended up strangling Bella to death. And he told Jack, like, you have to help me hide the body. And so they did. Gotcha. Yeah. And there is a report later that police, like, when they're looking through all of this from Una, there is a report that a police, there was a patrolman that had stopped, like, by a car that was parked by the woods. And there was a man in an RAF, like, outfit. And there was a woman that had, like, a man's coat over her. And so he thought he had, like, interrupted, like, a tryst. Yeah. And so he was, like, tip of the hat, like... Okay, I see you. Yeah, good on you with that Dutch piece. Oh, God. Gross. What a fuckity fuck. Yeah. So, but, like, whatever. Didn't think anything of it. Okay. But that could have been the night that this all took place. That could have been Bella, you know. Right. Who knows? Also, on this same, like, night that this is supposed to happen, there were two people that came forward like, before Bella, like, even was found in the witch elm, 
that had said they heard a woman scream in the woods on this night. But like, you know, someone was here, someone was here. They both went to the police and said, hey, I heard some screaming in the woods. The police checked it out, couldn't find her because, you know, she up in a tree. And so nothing came of it. But they, like, police never put that two and two together until, like, the cryptic messages came up and everything. And so then they started looking at Bella, looking through all their stuff again. And they saw, like, oh, this might have been the night that she was killed because it lines up. And now they're coming with this and they're like, okay, this could be the woman that they heard on the night in these woods. Like, things are coming together a little bit. Just a little bit. But wait, there's more. (laughs) But they couldn't really confirm the story because Jack said that he had reoccurring nightmares, that he saw the woman in the tree just leering up at him, and it honestly drove him mad. Less than a year later, he checked himself into a mental hospital. Oh, God. And he died. Oh, God. And he was only like 29. <gasps> oh, God. Yeah. The police followed up, tried to, you know, verify as much as they could, but they could not find anyone involved. But, you know, like if they were spies, uh, you wouldn't find them. Right. And like one's dead. One's a spy who killed someone. Right. And one was in the tree. So, don't think it's going to pan out for you. Well, I mean, they don't say two can keep a secret if one of them's dead for nothing. Exactly. During his research for a 1969 book called Murder by Witchcraft, Donald McCormick, he contacted an ex-Nazi who had spent time in the Midlands during the war. Shit. And this person did know of a German agent who had a girlfriend who also worked as a German spy. She was a Dutch woman, and she was named Clarabella Dronkers, who lived in Birmingham. So it kind of lined up with what Una's story was, but not exactly. Like, her name was Clarabella all, you know, all these things. But both of these stories, like, ring true that there were some rumors that two German spies had parachuted and landed in the Hagley area and vanished. And then there was a guy named Johann Dronkers who was executed for spying by the British in 1942. Oh, shit. Yeah. So, if he did have a girlfriend... You know, like they said he did, named Clarabella. She was age 30, and she did have irregular teeth. Like, they were crooked and, like, overlapped. Pillow talk gets you every time. Right? Well, there's no details of Clarabella ever existing, and McCormick's book isn't taken too seriously by everyone, Because he seems to have taken some liberties with some theories and such. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know. But it kind of worked in tandem with Una's story. 
wasn't the same, but also like espionage, espionage, and who knows? Right. It's like spies, and it fits the time frame because like, hmm. And even you thinking about what you said about the government with that slow burn podcast, right. like you can't put shit past anything, especially during a war. I mean, you touched on like all these spies and stuff like you'd never fucking know. Yeah. However, this was not the only espionage theory. A man named Peter Douglas Osborne, who is like a councilman for Birmingham or something like that now. He, well, not now, but you know, take that out. Not now. Sorry. Who was like a councilman from Birmingham. He said one day him and his father were walking through Hagley Wood when he was a kid. And they saw this blackened, burnt tree. And his father told Peter that when he was home on leave, because he was a soldier at the time, the remains in Hagley Wood were discovered. And since he was on leave, he got to work as a special constable. And he was given the task of standing watch over the scene that night that the police had uncovered the bones. So he was like standing guard of the unidentified woman now referred to as Bella. And so, you know, he did his thing, went on about the, you know, like was redeployed, everything. Well, after the war, he was traveling home from Italy and he met a pair of RAF pilots and they were, you know, just shooting the shit, telling stories like, oh, well, let me tell you this. Oh no, I gotcha. Listen to this. And so he told them about his night watching over bones that were in a tree. And the RAF pilots are like, no shit. Like, I think we saw a file, like, linked to her? Question mark? What? Yeah. And so that she, like, a lot of shit was redacted, obviously. But she had been involved with espionage. But she was executed during the war, which still could be her in the tree, because technically it was during the war. She had been educated, like, at either Oxford or Cambridge, and she had very distinctive teeth. The front teeth, just like Bella's, were overlapping. So it's like, oh, fuck. Like, she really wants a spa? Like, right. Wait, what? You know? And so, you know, he's telling his son this. Well, years later, Peter asked his father about it. And his father was like, like, I don't want to discuss it. It didn't ever happen. It's whatever, you know? And so Peter's like, something happened, you know? And I mean, just think, I mean, like, if those RAF pilots said something, like, Hey, uh, we let this slip or right. whatever. Hell, you never know. Like, if they were tortured and were like, okay, we told this one person. And, right. you know, he was done. Who knows? You know, like, what a- whatever. Or the dad was like, no, I've seen some shit and, like, I don't want to be on the other end of that. It never happened. Or it never happened and he was just a dad Trying to, like, be, like, beat his chest in front of his son. Who knows? 
My question is, did they never interview the guy that owned the land? I don't know, but like Lord Cobham was kind of like, I think, untouchable and kind of an asshat, I think. And so they probably did, but not really. Okay. And we're just like, can we look on your property? Okay, thanks, bye. You know, I don't right. I don't know. But that's crazy. Like it's like it's spies, but like but like did you interview the guy that owned the property? You know what I mean? Yeah. But then it's spies. You know, I don't know. Yeah. It's crazy. Right. Well, and there's more theories about being a Nazi spy. And some of them have been proven wrong due to, like, the wrong height of the person, et cetera. And so I didn't want to hit on those because, like, they've already been proven that, like, it it couldn't have been her, you know, whatever. Because, like, one of them was, like, a cabaret singer who was, like, groomed to be a Nazi spy because, obviously, she knows how to play to a crowd and all of that. She has that, you know, je ne sais quoi. I always um, said that. <laughs> and... All of that, however, she was 5'10", and Bella was 5. Yeah, not the same. Yeah, that's, like, way too much of a difference. So, like, that, I don't even want to go into her whole thing and her boyfriend and all the things. But those were the theories that were, like, super interesting to me. And for the naysayers about the hand not being a big part of the mystery, because most of them say, like, oh, an animal just scavenged it, and that's why it was, you know, laying there. But, like, if you think about it, and if you look at the tree, like, it's a gnarly-looking fucking tree. But an animal would have to scale the six-foot tree, which isn't unheard of, but ignore all of the other bones, all of the other shit that was in there, and just remove the hand from that space that was so tight that the tree needed to be chopped down to remove the remains entirely. And the normal behavior, quote-unquote, of any type of animal that would do that would take what they could, not just a measly hand. They would take everything. Right. So that's kind of like, I mean, the hand might not be a big thing. It might have been like they were like stuffing her in there and it, like her hand was sticking out or something. Who knows? And they were just like, and I chop you off. I have no fucking clue. I'm just saying like the animal scavenged theory doesn't line up. Honestly. And here's just one more little tidbit. So recently, Caroline Wilkinson, she's the expert who basically rebuilt Richard III's face, like when the bodies were found and everything. Mm -hmm. Well, she recreated Bella's features for, you know, like, hey, did anyone know this person or... Do you have any record of this person? You know, I mean, it's easier to see a face and realize it's a human than like a sketch. You know, it's right. like a rendering of a real person. So like she's the professor of craniofacial identification at Dundee University. And what she did was use photographs that were taken at the time to make this rendering Here's the whole loose ends part about this. She couldn't use the actual skull because that piece of evidence has been lost by the police. No, Really, a lot of the evidence. Like, a lot. 
has been lost. So no modern technology can be used to help solve this crime. So who put Bella in the witch elm remains a mystery, as well as who Bella truly was. Wow. And like what you were saying, like, but spies. And it's so weird, but like, I mean, that kind of seems to fit it, though, because like no one came forward, which I mean, like, say the ring was like cheap. So it could have just been something that she wore as a prop. Who knows? Like, if she was a spy, you know, like, who knows? Because, I mean, it's in the 40s. Like, if you were of a certain age, you should have been married. If you weren't, like, you were frowned upon. We all know this. So she used that, you know, to help her blend in. And no one came forward because, you know, uh, they're spies. And she was either killed by her own or killed because she was a spy and she was found out you know like she might have crept onto something she shouldn't have saw you know and they were like "Mm, she's a loose end take her out yeah who knows you know what your story reminds me of it reminds me of one that i heard on crime junkie about kendrick johnson and he was the high school student that was in the mat. Yeah, in the gym mat, like rolled up in it. And it's like they said he climbed in there to get his shoe and like got stuck. You know, it's and it was like, but no, yeah. there's no way. And that's very much what you're reminding me of. of like, there's yeah. literally no way. Right. There has to be some form of foul play. Right. That's so true. That's such a heartbreaking, heartbreaking case. and just head scratching case. Well, guess what? I'm not doing that one. I was about to say, uh, spoiler alert. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm not doing that one, but I'm doing another head scratcher. Okay. And I'm going to use your word, synchronicity. Oh, shit. Because there's some aspects that I was like, oh, about. Oh, fuck. Okay, picture it. It's June 1965, and we're in Houston, Texas. Mmm. Police get a call from a guy named Marvin Marlin. And he says to the police, look, my aunt and uncle, they're elderly and... They've fallen and they can't get up. Well, we don't know because they're not answering their phone. Oh. Can you please go do a welfare check on them? He said that he hadn't heard from his aunt and uncle in three days. He was very worried about them because they talked pretty regularly. And so it was odd that he hadn't heard from them. Well, the aunt and uncle are Fred and Edwina Rogers. Fred was 81 and Edwina, 72. So they're an elderly couple. Like, seems reasonable that he would be like, no, oh, fuck, they haven't answered the phone. Yeah. So when police get there, they knock on the door and nobody answers. So, you know, they kind of look around, can't see anything. So they end up breaking into the house. They're looking around and... They see no sign of Fred and Edwina. And so they're like, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. Well, then one of the officers notices that at the table, there's two plates set out like they're, they were about to have dinner and then didn't eat. And while he's in the kitchen, he notices, what's that smell? He opens the refrigerator and he sees, like, 
stacks of like washed but unwrapped hog meat. And so he's like, well, I guess it's the, the hog meat that stinks, you know? It stinks to hog's heaven up in here. Is that insane? Hog heaven. Just the one hog heaven. Oh. <laughs> well, there's multiple hog meat. Well, yeah. Like, for real, though, like, stacks and stacks and stacks in the refrigerator. And so he's like, okay, I guess that's what stinks. Then he looks in the crisper drawer and he sees two heads. Oh, shit. It was not hog meat. It was Fred and Edwina. Oh. Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh. So the murders of Fred and Edwina are known as the Icebox murders. Because back in the day, back in the 60s, 50s, and 60s, and probably before, not probably, before, they were called iceboxes, not refrigerators. Yeah. So the police are looking around even harder, but the house is very clean. So there's really no evidence. But they did find some blood droplets that led a trail to the bathroom. And so the police, through, again, more like investigating the bathroom, they figured out that after Fred and Edwina were initially attacked, they were then t- like dragged to the bathroom to basically have their blood drained mm. and then to be dismembered from there. They found a lot of their bodies like in the freezer, in the refrigerator, but they ended up finding other pieces like down the street in the sewer. But, Damn. Yeah, because whoever did this had actually flushed parts of the body. All in all, from what they found in the sewer and what they had left in the house, they were able to put enough together to do a good autopsy for on each of them. Edwina had been beaten pretty badly and then was shot execution style. Oh my gosh. But Fred got it the worst. Fred had been beaten with a claw hammer. Mm. Mm-mm. And y'all know, if y'all have been listening to this podcast, death by hammer sends shivers down my spine. Yes. But if I had to be beat with a hammer, I'd rather a hammer than a fucking claw hammer. Yes. Like, oh. So not only was he beaten with the worst hammer of all time, his eyes had been gouged out. <gasps> And his genitalia cut off. What? Yeah, so a really kind of weird... I feel like the genitalia being taken off signifies some form of abuse or... You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Or s- something. That that means something, I feel like. Also through the autopsy, they learned that whoever did this had some knowledge with anatomy because they did such a good job dismembering them like i hate to say it that way but they had some sort of training yeah they had also been dead in the house for three days which means that they were killed on father's day (gasps) no but guess what is right around this episode coming out father's day is that not weird like that's one of those coincidences i feel like this happens a lot to me yeah and i don't even mean to you know what i mean yeah This was a completely random one that I found. I mean, I don't know. Like, I feel like I've never heard this murder before. And maybe somebody's recommended it before in the Facebook group. But, like, I found this on, like, a BuzzFeed list. You know what I mean? Like, this is not, like, how bizarre. You love that fucking word. It was clear that whoever did the murder took their time, knew what they were doing, not only with the bodies themselves, but the crime scene, too. Because... There was 
only blood kind of leading to the bathroom of the master bathroom, but also leading to one of the bedrooms. And not a lot. I'm talking about like drip, drip, drip. Like not a lot. Police learn that Fred and Edwina's son, Charles, had actually been living with them. What? But where is Charles? Right. When the police get into his room, there's clothes everywhere. There's a little hot plate with a kettle. There's dishes. And he has a lot of ham radios that he would use and talk to people. But guess what else they found? A keyhole saw that had blood all over it. So, Avi, your girl didn't know what a keyhole saw was. So, Googled it, and literally, the way it's described is it's often used for cutting, like, awkward pieces of wood. So, like, I feel like that's perfect for, I don't know why I just sounded so excited, but I feel like that's perfect for, like, dismembering awkward parts of a body. You know what I mean? Is that weird? I shouldn't say that. Oh, but I am the one who's one head injury away from being a serial killer. Well, Charles is not at the house. And he's got a bloody saw in his room. So he's like prime suspect number one. So the police start doing some digging. They find out that Charles, he's 43, and he's really smart. Obviously, he has a great interest in ham radios. You know, all the ones that were found in his room. And when he finished high school, he originally went to Texas A&M and was like, you know what, nah, I don't like this. I'm going to go back to... University of Houston, to get his bachelor's degree in nuclear physics. Oh, yeah, that sounds fun. Uh-huh. Seems like it would be really easy. <laughs> mm-hmm. After he finished his bachelor's degree, he became a pilot for the U.S. Navy. So he had been, in, obviously, like in his 20s. So this is right during World War II. Dang. Yeah, yeah. Oh, but wait, there's more <laughs> synchronicity. Not only was he a pilot, but he also served in the Office of Navy Intelligence. Mm. So that's very, like, secret agent man to me. Yeah. You know, once he finished out his service in the Navy, he was hired by Shell Oil Company as a seismologist. Mm. So, like, the um, earthquakes and shit. Yeah. Which is very important to oil and gas industry, which is huge in Texas, the oil and gas industry. And and really big in Houston. Lots of old oil money in Houston. It's said that he was so smart, he spoke like seven languages. Some of that, I think the seven languages is like, is it true or not? I don't know. Like some stuff says it, some stuff is like, it's almost like it's a tall tale about him, you know? Unsure. But... He may, but he was brilliant, and he was a highly sought-after seismologist, like, from a lot of companies. After he was working for the Shell Oil Company, just as a hobby, he became part of the Civil Air Patrol, which is basically just, like, for, I think, anybody who kind of works in the aviation industry, just, like, kind of like a club for them, and... This is allegedly, but allegedly, while he was in the Civil Air Patrol, he met David Fury, who was accused of being involved in the plot to assassinate JFK. Mm. Well, after Charles had worked for Shell for like nine years, he just up and quit his job. He kind of did some stuff with his aviation, but really just was 
jobless and got to the point where he just had to move back in with his parents. And so that's how he ended up living back with Fred and Edwina. But Charles was odd, too. Like, a lot of the neighbors didn't even know that they had a son, period, much less a son that lived with them. But the ones who did said he came and went at odd hours. Like, he would, like, get up and leave before daylight and then not come home until after the sun went down. He would be gone hours upon hours throughout the day, and nobody knew where he was going. He was also not very friendly with his parents. Like, not he not saying he was mean, meaning they weren't to mutually friendly to one another. Like, they didn't communicate much. Like, they would pass notes under doors to each other. Like what? They, yeah, they wouldn't even talk. They would literally use, like, slide a kite down the hall to tell somebody information, you know? So he kind of becomes very reclusive and, and a loner and, you know, using his ham radios and all of that. So they're learning all of this about Charles, but they still don't know where the fuck he is. So they start this nationwide manhunt to find him. And guess what? They did. No. Ooh. No one to this day knows where Charles is and who killed Fred and Edwina. Oh, shit. Yes. But that's not all the story. In 1975, they legally declared Charles dead because no one had seen a peep from him since before his parents were murdered. So there's quite a few theories as to where he went, who did this. Some people say it was a serial killer, but like, okay, well, where's Charles? I mean, could his body have been dumped somewhere else? Yeah, could have. But I feel like a serial killer would not have spent that much time, like, cleaning up the room and stuff. Right. But anyway. Okay. So, remember how I told you that when he was in the Civil Air Patrol, it's alleged that he met that David guy that was involved with the plot to kill President Kennedy? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, one of the theories, and again, this is all theories, allegedly, so they say kind of thing. There was a book by John R. Craig and Philip A. Rogers, and they wrote the book. It was called The Man on the Grassy Knoll. So those two authors actually worked for the National Intelligence Service Bureau in Texas, and they said that they think their theory is that Charles was actually a CIA agent from 1956 to like the mid 80s. It said that he was actually impersonating Lee Harvey Oswald in Mexico City. What? Who killed JFK. Yeah. Then they say like with all his CIA stuff, nobody's going to find him. Nobody's going to like... He's on missions. Yeah. Like, police aren't going to turn him over. They said that he was one of the, quote, three tramps with Chauncey Holt and Charles Harrelson. And they were both arrested in Dallas after the assassination for murder, like, of a federal judge and, you know, in connection with the plot. Guess who Charles Harrelson is? Woody Harrelson's dad. I almost said Woody Harrelson's dad. 
But I was but like, like, what the fuck? That's you feel so like random. It, yeah, and you feel like that's something you would know. No, no, no. It's his dad. Wow. I actually found this interview with Woody Harrelson and Barbara Walters where she's asking him about it. And he says that he firmly believed because he was seven when this happened. And he said that he firmly believes that his dad is innocent and that he said the guy before him. So I'm assuming he's talking about Chauncey Holt, but that he ended up being like acquitted on retrial. So he, you know, he's like, my dad's innocent. And she said, so you think your dad's part of the CIA? And, like, he kind of gets uncomfortable, and he's like, no, I know he is. And um, she's like, well, how do you know? And he, like, again, is, like, kind of squirming in a seat, and he's like, we can't be talking about this. Oh, But I know he is. Oh, my gosh. Right? So it's like, okay, well, what does that have to do with his parents? Okay, that's like a, a wild ride of here's this theory of how he's connected to the assassination of JFK, but how is he, that connected to his parents? Well, Edwina was a bit of a nosy Nelly, and she would allegedly listen in on some of Charles's CIA calls. And so they knew too much. Mm. So they had to go. Mm. They also alleged in the book, The Man on the Grassy Knoll, that he moved to Guatemala where he died of old age. But again, that's all theory. And a lot of people criticize that book because it's like, this is completely fictional. Like, you have no way to prove any of this. But isn't that every conspiracy theory that it's like, it's always rooted in a little bit of truth. And so it's like, and some of the ones that are so outlandish, looking at you, MK Ultra are actually real, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. Like, the podcast I talked about earlier, Slow Burn, that I'm listening to about the Watergate stuff. I forgot his first name, but somebody, Mitchell, who was the um, attorney general at the time, who was trying to cover up Nick, Nixon's involvement. His wife, Martha Mitchell, was a lot like Edwina in that she would listen in on calls and she would she got all this information, but she would like blab to reporters and stuff. And so... They tried to, like, make her look crazy and talk about how she was an alcoholic and she was crazy and all this stuff. And it's like, she's schizophrenic and all these things. And it's like, they talked about how it really is a phenomenon where people who are telling these, like, crazy things that sound like conspiracy theories or, like, delusions, but it's really occurring that people think that they have that they're in a delusional state when really no shit's really that bad and they're telling the truth and they call it the Martha Mitchell effect. Wow. Yeah, and so that's very much like this it's like it's so outlandish and it's so like not really rooted in fact. Mm-hmm. But yet I feel like there's some facts to it, you know, that he was part of the naval intelligence when he was in World War II and in the navy. It stands to reason if he's that much of a nuclear physicist and, you know, speaks all those languages, then where do you think he learned those? You know what I mean? Like, I feel like the pieces kind of do fit that he would be a freaking CIA agent, you know? So I don't know. Like, again, it's all conspiracy, but it's like, it's just enough to make you go, but wait, but really though? Well, in 1997, a guy named Hugh Gardner and his wife, Martha, they started 
investigating it for themselves. Hugh is a forensic accountant, so he was taking kind of a different approach to it. They wrote a book called The Icebox Murders. So in their book, they talk about the CIA thing, but they say he wasn't an agent. We think he just had dealings with the CIA. Like he was a contract worker, basically, not like an official agent. So they allege in their book that he was actually abused by his father, not only in childhood, but adulthood as well, once he moved back into the house. And so he had enough of it, and that's why he attacked his parents. Which, if he was being abused by his father, that kind of explains the Father's Day massacre of his parents, as well as depending on what the abuse was, him removing his father's genitals. But, I mean, it kind of makes sense that if he was abused sexually... Yeah, you called it. I mean, nothing says that his... We don't know for sure that he was abused emotionally, physically, sexually. We don't know. I am definitely not saying that he was because I don't know. But it means something that his dad's genitalia was cut off. Mm-hmm. Now... It could just mean that he dismembered the body and that was one more piece that had to go. I don't know. But I feel like if it was Charles that did that, for a man to remove a man's genitalia post-mortem is very telling. Yeah. Well, here's the other thing, too. We don't actually know, like I said, that Fred was abusive. But, you know, in your head when you think of this, like, 80, 70 and 80 year old couple, you know, you look at their picture and it's like, God, they're so old and sweet, you know, and Mm -hmm. you just feel so sorry for them. But they were not nice people. They were con artists. Mm -hmm. And Fred was a bookie. So he just had a lot of dealings with like illegal gambling and loan sharking and all of that. And then they would just steal large sums of money from people fraudulently obviously hello stealing but they also did that from charles so charles actually owned the house that they all lived in and edwina would like take loans out on the house that charles owns wow and so they were stealing from their son too so i feel like they had a lot of enemies not just charles now do i think that charles did it Mm, probably But he's not the only enemy they had. Right. But in their book, they allege that he had been planning on murdering his parents for years. And that with the connections that he made while he was working in the oil and gas industry and like using his ham radios and all of that, he had these connections through even possible CIA contracting slash agenting if that's a word, that they think that he ended up fleeing to Mexico and then from Mexico to Honduras. And then from there, supposedly, they had an eyewitness that said that he was killed in Honduras over a wage dispute with minors. So those are the theories of what happened to Charles Rogers. We don't know 
no one ever saw him again except for this alleged sighting in Honduras where he was murdered over a wage dispute. But like I said, a judge in Houston found him legally dead in 1975, and we still don't know what happened to Fred and Edwina Rogers. Isn't that crazy that both of our stories had World War II and possible, like, secret agent man spy things in it. Yeah. And that like, we don't share our stories beforehand. I know. And it's so funny that I was like, hopefully your story, you know, like you didn't choose a story and I mean, you didn't, but you chose one just as frustrating. Head scratching. Yes. And two, like, I feel like they're both very fitting with the current world events, like, because so many people are wrapped up in conspiracy theories about just the current world events. I mean, the virus, I mean, literally Mm -hmm. everything. I mean, there, I mean, there are people who say that George Floyd isn't dead, you know, like there, I mean, there's so many theories about, and could, well, there's so many conspiracies about things that are going on in the world. And so I just think it was it's so interesting that we both did these kind of bizarre conspiracy-ridden things. So y'all definitely tell us what you think, because we don't know. No. No clue. I mean, I really think, I think she was a spy. and I, Or messed up with them. Like, maybe she was just a girlfriend of a spy, didn't know that he was a spy. Yeah. And then walked in on something and was like... Bullshit. Oh, I didn't hear anything that you were talking about. And he was like, gotta, gotta go. Yeah. You know, like yeah. you or me and uh, you're just a Dutch piece. You know what I mean? Well, and I mean, I don't know about Charles. But his disappearance just seems like. It's very coincidental. Mm-hmm. And again, it was so much easier to disappear then. Mm-hmm. That's what I was about to say. Because is it too coincidental? You know, like. At first, you want to be like, something's happened, and he either, like, he was taken and mm-hmm. held hostage and did whatever, you know, like, whatever. But then he could have done it all, and... Mm-hmm. Yeah, he either did it, or he didn't, and his body is never found. You know what I mean? Yeah. So crazy. We, again, y'all tell us what y'all think. Thank y'all so much for listening. And remember, creep it real and and don't don't get scared. scared.